Good afternoon. It's Friday the 27th of January 2023, just after one o'clock. Welcome to UK Column News. I'm your host, Mike Robinson. Joining me in the studio today, Patrick Hennigson from 21st Century Wire. Welcome to the programme, Patrick. Great to be with you, Mike. And we're going to get straight on with the doomsday clock. <laughs> well, the press release from the Bulletin of Atomic Scientists, and it reads 90 seconds to midnight. We're told this is the closest it's ever been to uh, Armageddon. That's basically what it signifies there. It's time to look at the clock closer, they're saying, because there's an unprecedented danger. Russia-Ukraine war pushes iconic doomsday clock closest to midnight ever in its history. Why is this? Well, it's because of all this sort of casual talk of nuclear exchanges and uh, limited nuclear exchanges and so forth. Nobody seems to be climbing down or talking about peace negotiations, ceasefires, that's all off the table right now. So the Bulletin of Atomic Scientists traditionally will get together and calculate all of these risk factors. Okay, they also put climate change in there and the risk of you know disinformation and disruptive technology. So there's a lot of questionable stuff that goes into their calculus. But on the issue of nuclear war and conflict, it's pretty straightforward and they've been using the same methodology really since their, uh, since their founding. And, and I, I have a hard time arguing with their conclusion on this. Uh, it certainly is escalating quite significantly and we're going to come on later on to, to what the Russian, the Russian response to the tank issues has been uh, and it's getting pretty dangerous. And my question, Patrick, is why, where's the anti-war lobby? in the West, where, where is it? It's just disappeared. It's disappeared. The, so what should be the anti-war lobby, what used to be on the left, um, unfortunately, they sort of gradually got uh, groomed into supporting overseas conflicts like the proxy war against Syria uh, and ignoring things like the war in Yemen and all of these other conflicts which we've been sponsoring, and of course, Libya. Um, so they managed to gaslight, I think, uh, the left. And so it's not even there. It's non-existent now. Um, and then they got sucked into the uh, church of, of the branch Covidians for the last three years. Mm -hmm. And as soon as the COVID crisis subsided, boom, came the Ukrainian crisis. But the, the support for Ukraine is really built on the back of a Russiagate hoax that's been going on now for six years but really started with the uh, election of Donald Trump. And, and that, so all that animus, all that bad energy and hate for Russia and support for Ukraine is really built off of that lie. So I think we have a deep psychological uh, condition in the West. Um, you know, I think it's a crisis of morality. It's a crisis of uh, intellect and ethics. And I think uh, Western civilization is at its lowest ebb uh, maybe in modern history, if you consider what people talk about and say, and everyone has their truth, and this is my truth, my opinion. No, no one really wants to look at the objective facts of the situation. Yeah, so well, they're I, panicking. Yes, well, I'm not going to let Britain off with what you just <laughs> said there, because of course, Russiagate, you're absolutely right to highlight that. But of course, that was driven partly from the UK through Richard Dearlove, and, Christopher, and Christopher Steele. Steele and so on, uh, but uh, coming off the back of a, an entire decade of uh, propaganda and gaslighting with the Integrity Initiative and the, the, the Russian report and all this stuff, absolutely sourced in the UK. So let's have a look at some more gaslighting here from Defence Intelligence uh, and their latest update uh, on what's going on in Ukraine. Uh, over the last six days, they say Russian online commentators have claimed Russian forces 
have made significant advances breaking through Ukrainian defenses in two areas, and they're talking about Zaporizhia and uh, Donetsk. Uh, and Russian units, they say, have prob probably conducted local probing attacks near uh, Orkiv and uh, Vladar, uh, but it's unlikely that Russia has actually achieved any substantive advances. Uh, and they say that there is a realistic possibility that Russian military sources are deliberately spreading misinformation in an effort to imply that the Russian uh, operation is sustaining momentum. Uh, and of course, this, this nonsense is being amplified by the mainstream press without any criticism or critical uh, <laughs> thought. This just smacks of desperation, Mike. So the intelligence services are putting out, or the DODs, putting out what uh, Russia's probably spreading false rumors about how well they're doing on the field. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter what the DOD says or what Russia says. The facts on the ground are the facts on the ground. And the problem, Mike, the problem in Britain and the problem in some European countries is they have blocked out and censored any other news sources other than Western ones about this conflict. So that means everybody in the West is in the dark um, and if you believe that all the Western mainstream reporting is factual and not biased and not propagandized, not heavily propagandized, and you think all the Russian reporting or Serbian reporting or Hungarian reporting is somehow inaccurate and uh, uh, Putin's propaganda, well, the facts on the ground are the facts on the ground. And how things are proceeding in Ukraine, um, I'm afraid, is not going to be affected by what the British DOD is putting out as their interpretation of the conflict. And the same goes for the United States. In fact, in the United States, they don't even, even have this conversation. Right. They're just, <laughs> just completely washed up in all these sort of razzmatazz of uh, CNN uh, uh, weapons porn uh, that they're doing right now with the uh, Abrams tanks and all of these sort of uh, procurements and things for Zelensky. Uh, okay, so let's move over to the United States and Victoria Newland, who's giving evidence, if you could call it that, uh, to the a Senate committee. She was being uh, questioned by Rand Paul uh, and had this to say uh, in the context of Russia's decision to negotiate seriously withdraw its troops from Ukraine and return territories, I would certainly support uh, the easing of sanctions. Uh, and uh, so, what are they saying here? Well, unfortunately, this narrative is no different uh, to what was being said in March last year. So this is what Victoria Newland said in March 2022. The sanctions will end if Putin ends this war and helps rebuild Ukraine and reestablishes peace and recognizes the country's sovereignty and territorial integrity and right to exist. So uh, lots of uh, press suggesting that this is a step forward, perhaps. Uh, that, that the U.S. saying that they would reduce sanctions in return for certain commitments from, from the Russian side. Uh, but in fact, the narrative is exactly as it was just restating something that already existed. You know, so her statements, what Victoria News is, is a typical tactic. Uh, I like to call this the Israeli negotiation tactics. They say, well, we've offered you a good deal. Just withdraw from every inch of uh, what used to be Ukrainian territory. And if you do that, then we'll have a ceasefire and we'll have some peace negotiations and everything will be great. Um, but it precludes any peace negotiations, Mike. That's the irony of Victoria Newland's statement. So that's just the party line. That is where they're going on strategy for messaging, which is that Russia has to withdraw. This is what Zelensky's saying. It's what Newland's saying. It's what all the Western 
uh, punditry is saying as well. And of course, that's not going to happen. So guess what? Ergo, there's going to be no peace negotiations, and the war will continue as scheduled and ramp up all the weapons uh, transfers and all the rest of it. So um, it, th this is not uh, anything that um, I think is productive, but it's just a placeholder. And you, you'll see them repeat the same thing periodically, and that's so that people in the West, governments, and uh, politicians can can look like they're doing something or they're 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 pushing the process along, but they're not pushing anything along actually. So, uh, speaking of sanctions, let's uh, introduce you to Spasty. Uh, this is uh, a Chinese organization with a subsidiary in Luxembourg. Uh, let's bring up who they are. They say they are a global new space company specialized in small satellites and satellite-based services uh, and so on. So why are we mentioning them? Well, the US has decided to sanction them uh, for allegedly providing satellite imagery to Ukraine. Uh, so we better put the sanctioned uh, Or to Russia oh, imagery? No, this is- To Ukraine? No, no, to, to, to Wagner Group, we're operating in Ukraine. Uh, sorry, yes, Wagner just to clarify Group. that. Yes, yes, sorry. Uh, it was just the the, uh, the report was a bit uh, uh, less than uh, accurate there. So anyway, uh, they uh, are among 16 what are described as entities uh, which uh, have been given sanctions by uh, the Treasury Department. Um, so they have offices, as I say, in Beijing and in uh, Luxembourg. And of course, Wagner is uh, operating, has been operating since the beginning in Ukraine and has been allegedly receiving satellite imagery from this company. But this is a pretty spectacular development, I think, uh, Patrick, because the sanctions are now being extended to Chinese companies. Now, we've seen that sanctions extended to, to Iran, but Iran's been on the sort of hit list for, uh, for you know, US uh, aggression for quite a long time. And this, is, I think, is, uh, to my knowledge, the first time they have, uh, in, at least with respect to Ukraine, imposed sanctions on a Chinese company, uh, eff effectively extending the pressure uh, on the other big target. So this just happened. So this is coming at the exact time that the West um, Western uh, law enforcement agencies are now, and the U.S. Treasury wants to now categorize the Wagner Group or Wagner Group, depending on how you pronounce it. That's a Russian private military company as a international terrorist organization. Mm. So put those two things together, this satellite sanction story. So they're, and they're saying this Chinese company is effectively helping a terrorist group. So this, this is the sort of hyperbole that the US is known for. They called WikiLeaks an international hostile foreign intelligence services and that justified the superseding indictments against Julian Assange. That was Mike Pompeo running point on that. So this is interesting. The other thing, Mike, it does is it extends the battlefield into space. And that's significant. So what the West is effectively saying is um, we're allowed to scan uh, the, the Earth and use satellite imagery and keep our uh, assets up there to relay intelligence and reconnaissance information. But Russia and China are not. And, and so this is the direction we're heading. You know where this leads, don't you, Mike? This leads to uh, shooting up uh, in the lower Earth orbit and upper Earth orbit. This is where it's eventually going to end. Yes, well, it's so, something they've been, uh, you know, NATO and, and so on have been talking about for quite a long time now. Yeah. Uh, but that's, uh, that. this takes us on to Zelensky. Zelensky, well, he, he gave an incredible interview uh, with, with I think, this, well, this was with Sky News, but uh, they rebroadcast it. I'm not sure who, who did the original. But he, um, he was asked about would he speak to Vladimir Putin and 
This was his answer. Do you ever wonder what might happen if you were in a room alone with President Putin? Would that help at all to resolve this war? It's not interesting for me. Not interesting to meet. Not interesting to speak. Uh, wh why? Because we had meeting with him in Normandy format. It was before the full-scale invasion. I saw the man who said one thing and then did another. Is it too late now? Too late? Not interesting. Who is he now? After full-scale invasion, for me, he is nobody. N nobody. So Putin's nobody, but Putin's the man that he has to negotiate with if he wants to end this war, right? Yeah, Suzanne is a nobody. I don't speak to him. Send Sean Penn. He's my friend. You know, more celebrities. Send Nancy Pelosi. Send Boris in with the uh, uh, long sleeves and the jacket. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, this is, this is a, again, Mike, back to the uh, original Victoria Nuland thing. Zelensky, same type of script. Mm -hmm. um, we're not going to negotiate with the Russians. We're not prepared to. Let's carry on with the war. And so, you know, you, you won't have any sort of pushback in the Ukrainian media because Zelensky has banned opposition media. He's banned opposition political parties. If you speak up and you're seen or labeled as uh, sympathetic to the Russian cause or a Russian talking point, like wanting to uh, negotiate peace or stop the war or anything like that, you're attacked. You could be violently attacked um, in Ukraine. That's just the atmosphere right now. And the United States, Britain, and the NATO countries are absolutely cheering it on 100%. Uh, he uh, it took him quite a long time to answer that question. He didn't seem to be quite on on the ball or quite on yeah, point. He could have had a long night. It certainly, he didn't look very good. It looked like he had a bit of a rough night. Or maybe this is just uh, his normal modus operandi. Or is there something causing pressure in Ukraine within his own government? Could that be it? I think he's under constant pressure. He, he is a puppet at the end of the day. He's, uh, he was doing low-grade vaudeville Ukrainian television sitcoms like three, four years ago, and all of a sudden he was voted in as president. It shows you how cynical the Ukrainian electorate was, but also there's an electronic voting aspect um, to their sort of modern democracy as well. That's worth looking into. Maybe we'll be able to do that in the future, maybe not, Mike. But the, the real problem here is look at this scandal. Ukraine has been rocked by a major corruption scandal. We're talking about embezzlement. We're talking about Lamborghinis. We're talking about European villas, mansions, and luxury vacations by Ukrainian officials, including uh, his uh, advisors, Zelensky's own inner circle and his deputy ministers, and so forth, defense officials. Mike, the pilfering is just off the charts. And this is, this is an internal corruption scandal in Ukraine. You can imagine what the real story is. Mm. It's probably 100 times worse. We're writing out blank checks to this corrupt country that was at the top of the corruption index globally before the war, and then we're all meant to think that somehow Ukraine became this bastion of uh, morality and transparency uh, just after Putin invaded and Zelensky became world saint and all the rest of it. Look, the grift, honestly, 
this is me editorializing here, my opinion. The grift has to end, okay? They have, th this country has sucked enough out of the Western purse and dumped it into black, a black hole, a financial money pit that's called Kiev. It's, it, and, but the thing is, it's not going to end. So they've just had the Ramstein defense conference where they've managed to get the tanks issue sorted out, it seems, and possibly aircraft as well. They are now talking about setting up a similar uh, mechanism for the financial side to make sure that, that they can bully countries and to keep pumping the money in as well. So, you know, where is that money going? Where's the accountability for all the tax dollars that's gone into the Ukraine already? It should be an audit. It should be an audit of every penny. Can Europe afford it? Can the UK afford it? Can the United States afford to, to be pumping money and weapons and aid and all the rest of it? No, they can't. Where's the money going? It's ending up in Switzerland. It's ending up in Italy. It's ending up in Miami. It's ending up all around the world in Dubai. It's ending up everywhere but where it should be or where it's intended to be. And the weapons that we're sending, we'll show you in a minute, they're not ending up on the battlefield. They're ending up on the dark web, on the black market. A tremendous amount of trafficking, which we'll detail um, in a minute, Mike. But, but this, look, it's time to cut them loose. I mean, if it was, if it was me in charge, cut Ukraine loose and let them sue for peace. Let them sue for peace. There's, there's going to be no end to the war. There's going to be no peace. There's going to be risk of escalations as long as we keep funding this and dumping weapons into what is becoming the world's biggest uh, heap of uh, scrap metal. So we'll show you some uh, yeah, well, let's, let's start looking at details the, on that in a minute. Scrap metal. But this is a real corruption scandal in Ukraine, and yeah. it's just the tip of the iceberg, uh, I can guarantee you that. So we'll see more reports. Notice the mainstream media is not talking about that scandal. All of these Ukrainian officials forced to resign because of corruption. I'm not seeing that on the BBC. Why not? Shouldn't that be front and center? Shouldn't that be the number one story? BBC, Times, you guys, not worth covering? Guardian, not, not worth, worth covering. Co must not be a significant story, especially since all we're sending hundreds of millions of billions of dollars there. I guess it's nothing. Okay, let's move on to the uh, to the tanks issue then. So the big ticket items, Mike. Uh, last week we reported that uh, the United States weren't going to send Abram tanks. So this is uh, an update on the delivery of the future scrap metal for Ukraine. Um, and let's see who's uh, let's see Joe Biden. He's he's woken up and he's been told this is happening. So this is the M1 Abrams tank. This is the big ticket item for the United States. This is supposed to be the game changer. This is gonna turn it all around for Ukraine. Well, according to uh, British DOD, they don't have to turn it around because they're winning by a long shot and Russia's holding on for dear life, according to the uh, intelligence update we just showed you, but disregard that. So here's the story. Biden reverses decision, pledges to send tanks. The key word, Mike, is pledges. Did they actually, are they going to actually send them? Well, they've already said that they're not sending them in time for this spring offensive. So when are they sending them? They didn't say when they were gonna send them. This is the thing. 31 M1 Abrams tanks to Ukraine and delivered within months. They were not specific how long that could be. My guess is, well, I'll make a prediction in a minute. Um, and this includes uh, training of Ukrainian personnel. That's uh, supposedly starts now. And that's gonna be done in the United States. So just, just a little bit of a, um, a look in here, Mike. It takes years for U.S. specialists um, working on Abrams, engineers, specialists, tactical specialists, and all the mechanics and stuff, years before they get deployed with a battle group. 
okay? And not only that, the United States has multiple groups around the country and around the world at which they can backfill and move around like pieces on the chessboard. Ukraine does not have that sort of personnel available to that skill level. So this means only two things, Mike. Either they're just blowing smoke here, or they're going to be sending in large teams of U.S. Tech, technical teams, which is what the United States had in Iraq, even after they handed uh, uh, in Abrams, uh, multiple Abrams battle groups to the Iraqi Arms Forces. Okay, And I'll tell you this, uh, on this issue of the Abrams tanks, for all the military heads out there, the United States withdrew technical support for its Abrams tanks in Iraq month, one month before ISIS appeared out of nowhere and took Iraq by storm. And guess what? Nothing happened with the Abrams tanks. Mm. They're expensive toys without U.S. support teams. That is just the fact, okay? So what, are they to what they're talking about here is either massive U.S. deployment of so-called so technical people, or they're just basically going through the motions to buy time. So let's look at this. Who's the real winner here? It's this, Mike. It's General Dynamics. Big payday for General Dynamics because the 31 tanks they give to Zelensky, that means those are going to be replaced by another 30 or 50 brand-new, top-of-the-line Abrams tanks for the United States military, and those will be sitting somewhere in, you know, in Texas or in California or whatever. So that's where that is. So let's go for the, just to do a recap here. Tanks for Kiev. There he is. And uh, we, just, we just think that because it's a scrap metal heap, only, only fitting Mike Trotter's independent trading company in New York, Paris, and Kiev, and Zelensky is begmanding. This is a combination of begging and demanding. Begmanding. And I don't take credit for that term. That's uh, uh, Joaquin Flores at New Resistance invented this term to describe Zelensky. I just think it's so fitting. And he does this on a daily basis. The begmanding begins. And so the United States, Germany, Britain, 31, 14 leopards from Germany, and 14 challengers. Let's do the math real quick on that, Mike. That's a total of 59 tanks. Is that going to be a game changer? This, no. is, this is the question. But we're told this is a big deal. Has this not dominated the media coverage all week? This is like everything. Let's take a look, though. Just to remind people, this is that little handy little fun fact and graphic we showed you. This is the, these are combat tank fleets from around the world. Rough numbers, but relatively accurate here. Russia, 12,566. Next is North Korea with 6,600, and it goes down from there. The United States have got 5,500. Uh, so, yeah, well, let's take a look at it. Where's Ukraine? Just a little reminder there. They are 1,890. Who knows what that true number is? Well, lots of those have disappeared. They've been uh, they have broken down or they've been destroyed or whatever. So, so uh, the true number is more likely to be, what, zero? Yeah, well, not zero, but um, probably sub substantially less than what it was when this chart was made. But add in those 59 tanks from the West, so that, that's the current number before the uh, latest round of tanks from the West, uh, 1,890. Let's just do an update on that. Zelensky wants to know as well. And uh, there he is. And the grand total is, new tank total for Ukraine, 1,949. So what do you think? I think uh, I think uh, it's going to make no difference whatsoever. But look, let's. Uh, this is sending a strong message to the Russians. Well, let's let's see how strong a message it is sending to the Russians. Uh, so the Russians uh, not uh, terribly impressed 
Uh, this is Dmitry Peskov saying there have been repeated statements from the European capitals and from Washington that the sending of various weapon systems, including tanks to Ukraine, by no means signifies the involvement of these countries or, the, or NATO in hostilities in Ukraine. Uh, we strongly disagree with this. Moscow perceives everything that both the alliance and the capitals I mentioned have been doing as direct involvement in the conflict. We see that this is growing. So this, uh, this cannot be ignored. Patrick, this is the Russians being very clear and they've been very patient, I think, with what the West has been doing over the last year. And that patience, I think, is wearing thin at this point. They see that this is becoming much more a direct involvement of NATO countries in a conflict uh, and therefore direct conflict with them. Uh, what's the European attitude to this? Well, here, let's bring Stefano Sonino on. He's the Secretary General of the European External Action Services, like the EU Foreign Office. Um, and he said, uh, Putin has moved from a concept of special operation to a concept now of a war against NATO and the West. Why should that be a surprise to anybody under these circumstances? When, you know, this is typical gaslighting once again uh, from a, a, an EU leader saying, you know, almost implying that Putin has, is doing something wrong by taking this attitude when in fact Putin is merely finally uh, acknowledging, recognizing and being public about that acknowledgement so, so we have of all, what the reality on the ground is. All Western leaders have been saying Ukraine needs to be in NATO. You, th this needs to happen. Ukrainian membership. They, they push Sweden and Finland to join NATO. They're working on Georgia and the others, surrounding Russia with NATO. And this person, the Secretary General of European External Action Services, Mr. Senio, Senino, he's saying that uh, this is Russian aggression. Yes. So NATO expansion is Russian aggression. Look, I'll make it. Uh, Biden one year ago was asked. Well, are you going to send tanks? And he said, no, 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 that'll be World War III. I wish we had the clip today, but it, it's circulating online. No, no, don't, no, no, we're not going to send tanks. That'll be World War III. Uh, 11 months later, and they're sending tanks. And the Germans are sending tanks. And by the way, I don't, I wish I'd put the graphics in. Um, the German tanks have the Iron Cross on them. Okay, and also the Straight Cross as well. Mm. Uh, so, yeah, the Germans sending panzers into Ukraine against the Russians, little deja vu. Isn't that great? Yes. What have we learned in 80 years? No. Well, then the question comes, um, why is, uh, you know, you, you're saying about, about Biden and World War III and whatnot, but we don't actually have a direct date for when Biden's sending them yet. The question is, what's the, what's the reticence? What's the holdback here? Uh, and well, maybe this is part of it. This is certainly something that Brian's been hinting at. Uh, so this is TASS, of course. Uh, American Abrams tanks vulnerable even to Soviet-era weapons, says expert. Uh, U.S. President Joe Biden announced on the 25th that Washington would hand over 31 Abrams tanks to the Kiev regime. So let's just look at what the expert had say, was saying. Abrams tanks repeatedly demonstrated their vulnerability during the hostilities in Iraq, the expert pointed out. Uh, and this is a quote, as the Iraq combat experience shows, they went up in flames. The tank turret was pierced by a 100 millimeter armor piercing blunt nose projectile fired by a T-55 tank. There are instances where Abrams vehicles were struck by automatic guns of both Bradley and our BM-2 uh, infantry fighting vehicles. And, and really what he was going on to say was that uh, these, uh, your comment was scrap metal. These will be turned into scrap metal on the battlefield very quickly. And not only that, Mike, the United States doesn't have any experience using these tanks in any other climate 
or terrain other than desert, okay? And even then, they haven't done, you know, U.S. has not had full-scale military-to-military confrontations. Probably the first Gulf War was the Mm. the last time that actually happened. When was that, 1991? So a little bit of a, a little long time ago, and and ditto for every other NATO country. Mm. They don't have any experience fighting wars, but they're wanting to prosecute a massive war. Although they themselves don't want to fight, the Ukrainians are going to fight, and we'll just arm you. And so, I'm, I'll make a prediction: in in a year's time, they will have not deployed even probably eighty percent of these tanks that they're committing. And that's what the journalists will say in a year's time. They didn't actually make it to the front line. Mm. So all the promises were made today in early 2023, but it was just too complicated and not practical uh, to actually happen. So I I think a lot of, so much of this is posturing and propaganda to keep your, you know, U.S. has to put a little bit in to keep Europe interested. Europe's got to put a little bit in to placate Washington on this. And Britain's the kind of chief whip, you know, in the background making sure everybody's uh, doing what they're supposed to be doing to prosecute the war. And meanwhile, that it does not going to affect the facts on the ground at all. And the facts on the ground is Ukraine has lost a third of its territory. Okay? And that's not going back. Sorry. I mean, I don't know how they plan on taking all that back unless there's a nuclear war. Or is that the plan? Is that is that the plan by Washington? Is this why they keep saying Putin could... Uh, use a tactical nuke if he felt he's cornered, you know, like this talking point. Mm. Russia uses tactical nukes when they're cornered. When did Russia ever use a tactical nuke ever? They haven't, okay? This is a made-up talking point and probably to justify the fact that Ukraine is hiding some of its heavy equipment and its HIMARS around nuclear power facilities, just like they used the civilians of Mariupol as human shields, like ISIS does. That's what terrorists do. They're doing the same. They're hiding their, some of their weapons and heavy equipment and assets around civilian nuclear power facilities around the country to protect them, obviously. So, and, and you know, that's, what, that's the reality of what's happening. Mm. So I, if, this is, if this is a war that the West uh, is, you know, thinks they're going to win or they think that this is honorable or this is all happening above board, uh, it doesn't look like it when you actually uh, do some basic investigation. Okay. So, so this uh, brings us to another point. What happens to all these weapons, Mike? What happens when they reach Ukraine? Here's an excellent interview here by French uh, international lawyer. He, by the way, worked with former U- U.S. Attorney General Ramsey Clark and many other uh, good organizations. His name's Arnaud Develé. And he gave a really uh, amazing interview, which we conducted maybe about a week or two ago, uh, recently anyway, um, about this issue, about this important issue here. And uh, it's very revealing, revealing. And it really it summarizes uh, what was in the article which he wrote here, um, Ukraine arms trafficking, the waltz of bloody clowns. And here he shows actual evidence of uh, some of these weapons turning up on the dark net um, and also being traded on uh, Telegram and uh, encrypted messaging and so forth. And so there's actual uh, receipts here in this report. So we've done quite a lot of work on the arms trafficking subject uh, over the last couple of years. And this is just adding to that. So this is where uh, Western arms are turning up. Um, They're going on sale in the black market, okay? Now Russia admittedly is buying some of this stuff up to take it off the street. So there's that side of things too. 
The United States did have done the same thing, buybacks um, on weapons and things like that in the Middle East. So that's just uh, expected. But here's the question, and we can take this a little bit further. Um, this is the dark net here. So this is by Freddie Ponton. This is in July we flagged this up. Ukraine sells Caesar howitzer guns on the black market to Russians, and that was Russians pulling, taking them off the street. 120000 each. Now, that's not what they're worth. They're worth a lot more than that. Mm. Okay, they're worth, I, th I think, this one of these units is something like between 1.5 and 3 million euros, I think, um, on, the, on the wholesale, I guess. Um, and, but they're going for 120K. And they're, they're, they're going missing, and this is what Arno Devoli said, they're going missing at the point of arrival. So this has to be Ukrainian uh, corruption, Ukrainian armed forces. This has to be their DOD or people within their military structure are basically flogging these weapons as soon as they arrive. Mm -hmm. In some cases, he's saying that they've already been pre-ordered. So there, there's buyers already ready, Mike, before the weapons actually get there. And when they arrive, they get dispatched um, via various uh, distribution sales. And here's the other side of this. And this is the ugly side here. Um, are, are France and NATO shipping depleted uranium weaponry into Ukraine? That is a question that should not be very difficult for people. And this, again, this is a great report here by uh, the French journalist, uh, Freddie Ponton. There's a number of good independent French journalists, by the way. They're doing really good, diligent work on this topic. But this is looking at the, the, all the stuff that France has been supplying uh, to the Ukraine here and all these different systems. This is the Milan anti-tank system here. This uses depleted uranium or has been known to use, um, even uh, in terms of the Javelin, the U.S. anti-tank, uh, the Mistral short-range uh, anti-aircraft, this handheld anti-aircraft. So a lot of these uh, weapons can or either they're enabled to or have in the past been used um, using depleted uranium. That is basically poisonous. Once it gets into the atmosphere, into the soil, it takes years to clean up. There's plenty of evidence here that's been compiled as to uh, depleted uranium as the Javelin system there. But what's interesting is uh, we're talking about the tanks, Mike, the Abrams tank. One of the things about the Mistral here, this is a handheld anti-aircraft battery. Uh, so the, the amount of depleted uranium that is now basically blowing around Ukraine, around farms and fields and towns, um, and a lot of the DU is coming from the West. So we are, we are creating an environmental disaster in Ukraine because of all these weapons. Oh, let's just rewind a little bit. What about the Abrams tank, Mike? How about the Abrams tank? Let's take a look at that. Abrams M1A1 tank uses depleted uranium. Well, there you go. So there's more DU heading for Ukraine. And of course, we, we did that in Iraq. We sprayed depleted uranium all over Iraq. And Iraq suffered from birth abnormalities, def deformations for years after, still is, as far as I know, uh, huge numbers of uh, stillbirths, huge numbers of uh, deaths as a result of the amount of DU that we uh, scattered across that country. And we're going to do that in Ukraine as well, it seems. Are we paying any compensation to those Iraqis? Are we going to pay compensation from the West, the people supplying the arms? Will, will our governments pay compensation to the future generation of Ukrainians who are uh, sick, ill, or die, or birth defects as a result of depleted uranium from all the weapons NATO countries are sending. Are we going to pay compensation? Do you think that would be fair? Oh, we've got budgets allocated for that. 
No, we're not going to pay because we didn't pay the Iraqis. So we don't care about Ukrainians. Our governments don't care. If they cared, they wouldn't be dumping depleted uranium all over the country. Simple. Uh, so let's uh, have a look at arms spending then. And uh, well, the UK government has uh, decided to uh, announce the amount of money that was spent 2021 and 2022. So 21 billion pounds. Uh, this is spending on with UK defense firms. This is not uh, the total defense spending. Uh, but uh, and they, they're quite happy to tell us how much they've spent in the various regions because they're very excited about it. So 21.1 billion pounds is the total MOD expenditure with UK industry and commerce. That's 3% increase on the previous year uh, when accounting for inflation. Um, and uh, so that works out at 310 pounds for every person living in the United Kingdom. Uh, so that's very exciting. Um, well, let's have a look at uh, the this little graph then, which shows uh, the amount of spending, which is, uh, well, there's two lines on that. The bottom line, this sort of light uh, pink line is uh, the day-to-day the, the, the -day price, the, the price at the time, or the price at the time. So, you know, uh, in 2013, they were spending something a lot, what was that, about uh, 18.9 billion, uh, and now it's 21.1 billion. Uh, the dark line is showing that inflation adjusted. So, so actually, you can see that even at this point in 2023, uh, well, the numbers for 2021, 2022, uh, they're still spending, uh, when you adjust for inflation, quite a lot less uh, than they were in 2013, 2014. So, uh, you know, that, that's, that's the reality of what's going on. Nonetheless, uh, it's, it's heading north at the moment. And in the United States, it's the same. So here's uh, Military Times, U.S. arms export approval soared in 2022. That's one part of this story. Uh, they're saying that, uh, well, let's bring it on, on screen. Sales of military weapons between the US and foreign governments shot up to nearly 51.9 billion in 2022. Uh, but uh, the, the total represented a 49% uh, jump from 34.8 billion in sales the previous year. Uh, direct commercial sales from contractors to governments also grew uh, reaching 153.7 billion, up from 103.4 billion the year before. So uh, it's 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 good business, Patrick. Well, they're saying Europe are rushing to arm themselves in the wake of Russia's invasion of Ukraine 11 months ago. Yeah. No mention there that France and Germany had an opportunity to avert the conflict uh, by helping to uh, get the Minsk Accord signed, but of course they uh, absconded from their duties there. But it's all that's all Putin's fault. Yes. Uh, we're told. Okay, well, let's move on to the uh, Atlantic Ocean then. And uh, well, Russia's been busy. Uh, so here is uh, uh, a frigate um, and they're busy firing, a hype, well, practicing or simulating, uh, exercising, firing uh, a hypersonic weapon. So the Russian, Russian Navy carrying out a test launch simulation of a Zircon in the Atlantic Ocean. Uh, that's according to the Russian Defense Ministry. Um, and uh, so they were... Uh, practicing hitting with a Zircon hypersonic missile, a target simulating an enemy warship at a distance of more than 900 kilometers. So the crew of the frigate Admiral Gorishkov, operating in the western part of the Atlantic Ocean, uh, trained in the use of hypersonic missile using computer modeling method. Uh, so let's get a statement from the uh, commander. He said the electronic launch and the operation of the ship's entire combat crew confirmed all the characteristics expected for the system and demonstrated during preliminary and status tests. So, okay, it's it's a, a simulation. It's not real, but it's a frigate running around the Western Atlantic, not so far from the coast of the United States. 
what is the, we haven't seen any response from the US yet to this, uh, but it must be of concern. Sure, sure it is. I mean, uh, talking about the hypersonic missile issue, Mike, you know, if, if there's a cluster of Abrams tanks that are sitting in a, a stockyard somewhere or a warehouse maintenance or whatever, that's just going to get vaporized by one of those hypersonic yes. missiles. So again, it's all scrap metal that's coming into the country. It's future scrap metal, all of these arms deliveries. That's the reality of it. This is what's happened since. How much stuff has been lost? It didn't even get deployed into the field. Paid for by the European public money. Paid for by debt in Europe, debt in the United States. We can't even calculate how, well, how high. Well, uh, towards the end of the program, if I'm, if I'm feeling particularly vindictive, I'm going to show a little clip of Jeremy Hunt giving his uh, speech this morning as Chancellor of the Exchequer. And when you get to the end of that, just think about how much money is going into this exercise, how much British money, how much US money, how much EU money is going into this exercise and the, the struggles that people are having at the moment. Uh, and the question has got to be asked, has this country got the priorities right? And I think most people would say no. But if you're going to say no, we've got to start acting and telling our MPs it's no longer acceptable. Yeah. Now, uh, this is Holocaust Memorial Day, uh, Patrick, so uh, sticking with the Russian theme, uh, he, Russians are not welcome at Auschwitz, apparently, mm -hmm. uh, and uh, this is because of the Ukraine war. Um, so let's bring the uh, museum director at Auschwitz up, uh, and he has said, I will sign no letter to the Russian ambassador having an inviting tone. Uh, he said, uh, Russia will need an extremely long time and very deep self-examination after this conflict in order to return to gatherings of the civilized world. What a statement. <laughs> let, me, let me just refresh me on my history, Mike. Who liberated Auschwitz concentration camp? Uh, well, 78 years ago today, it was in fact the Red Army. It was the Russians, wasn't it? Yes. That's interesting. That's interesting. And who are the Russians fighting in Ukraine right now? Um, what are the, the swastika thing? What? Nazis. Nazi, that's right. Uh, so yeah. they're fighting the Nazis now. They liberated Auschwitz and they're not allowed to come to Auschwitz for the Holocaust Memorial. It makes perfect sense. It, it does. Well, it, it makes, makes perfect uh, as perfect sense as ever, anything that's mm -hmm. going on so far in this program. But anyway, let's uh, say if you like what the UKCon does, you would like to support us, uh, please head over to community.ukcon.org. Uh, there are options for you to become a member there. You'll be very welcome into the community and that would help us out a lot. You can pick something up at the UK Column shop, uh, but please do share the material you find on the various platforms. And I just want to give a shout out here uh, at 21st Century Wire. Uh, we're doing our winter fundraising drive. This is our annual fundraising drive uh, to help uh, fund the operation and all of our other shows, our journalism, our investigative work as well. And we're doing that right now, so we're asking if you're interested to donate. Uh, we certainly appreciate your support. Any amount of support uh, goes a long way, and uh, we absolutely appreciate every penny. So if this is something that uh, you might be interested in, check our work out as well. Um, yeah, we just want to open that invitation. Okay, thank you, Patrick. Now, let's move on to uh, Twitter, well, to social media news, first of all. And, uh, well, Euronews here has a headline, why is Elon Musk's Twitter being sued in Germany? And it's, uh, of course, about anti-Semitism. So uh, let's see, the lawsuit fi filed by HateAid, a digital rights organization, and the European Union of Jewish Students uh, argues that social media companies failed uh, 
to its own rules when it comes to anti-Semitic content. Uh, the organization claims the tweets in question were reported to Twitter but not taken down. The platform even allegedly refused to remove one comment related to Holocaust denial, which is criminalized in Germany. Now, we're not allowed to see what these tweets are uh, because they're not linked in this new Euronews article, so we can't make any kind of decision about this. But this is the key part. The case will try to determine whether, determine whether Twitter is legally obliged to remove such material. But what's unique about the case is that the organization isn't suing Twitter on the basis of German law, but on the platform's own terms of service and rules, as explains uh, Josephine Ballon, head of legal at HateAid. Now, this is very important on the platform's own terms of service. What a coincidence, because, of course, here in the UK, as the online safety bill is uh, continuing its way through Parliament, one of the big issues over the last number of months has been this issue of harmful, uh, legal but harmful. Uh, and what does legal but harmful mean? What's the definition? There's been lots of pushback, and so the government has dropped that idea. But what's it dropped that idea in favour of? Let's remind ourselves, here's Michelle Donnellan writing in Conservative Home uh, a few days ago. Uh, for adults, my new triple shield, she said, mechanism delivers choice. Where content is illegal, clearly it should be removed. But if a platform says in its terms and conditions that it does not allow certain content, they must keep that promise and remove it. So again, it's an attack or it's a, the, the, the attack vector in terms of censorship is the terms of service. So I'm finding it very interesting, Patrick, uh, has there been some recognition, some agreement between international partners uh, that this is a good mechanism for censorship in the future if, if governments legislatively, legislatively have not got the, the, the uh, confidence to move ahead with this idea of legal but harmful, removing harms in some kind of arbitrary way, forcing social media companies, therefore, to, to uh, impose whatever restrictions they have and consistently impose whatever restrictions they have uh, in their terms of service. I just find it interesting that this approach is now being taken in different countries. So then the question, Mike, is uh, what about the terms of service? How specific will the terms of service be um, if they talk about hate speech or hate crime, which isn't actually legally defined, by the way. A lot of people aren't aware of that. It's just kind of an arbitrary label. Um, so if they say that, you know, so it's up to the social media companies to how they're going to word that. The problem is if they say that we'll remove uh, hateful content or whatever, that's how long is a piece of string? Mm -hmm. Hateful content or hate speech. Now, there has been a problem with fake hate crimes. This is an established practice by certain uh, organizations that want to get more attention or get more sympathy or support. This is a reality. In the physical world, hate, fake hate crimes are real. Mm -hmm. And online, they're probably very easy to do. And if you look at some of these uh, counterintelligence and uh, online uh, boiler rooms run by various militaries in NATO, i.e. Brigade 77 and so forth, right. what's to stop a, a, a group within some a cell like that to start posing as uh, extreme far right and putting up uh, anti-Semitic or bigot, big, bigoted language and um, attacking Jews and so forth. And then all of a sudden the, 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 the groups, the, the anti-hate groups then go to the government and say, look, 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 look at all this hate speech. They have to t remove this immediately. It's too much, too much. And the government comes in and fines them, you know, f whatever, how many million a day because they're not removing it fast enough. Well, I mean, in fact, they're, they're talking about uh, custodial sentences for, uh, for executives that 
if those terms and conditions are not enforced. How do you know what's legitimate in terms of what people are actually posting? It's amazing how the fringe freak activity online is going to be used to determine if these social media companies are going to be able to exist at all. It is just beyond the pale. The whole thing is ridiculous. If it's not illegal, then it shouldn't be prohibited. So, you know, is it the government's job to make sure that people don't feel offended or don't feel, quote, harmed? What does harmed mean? Again, there's no definition for that. This whole thing is ridiculous. It's designed to throttle free speech and freedom of expression. And this is the chief desire of governments right now. They want, they want to throttle speech and centralized speech control through fact checkers, or they'll do it by trying to maneuver uh, big tech companies into a corner, okay? In the US, they threaten to break them up. That's the behind the scenes threat. We're gonna break you up like we did uh, Bell Telecoms and so forth mm. with antitrust legislation. So in Europe, you're, uh, if you get a Twitter legal notice, it usually comes from Germany because um, all, either all the legal issues in Europe are handled in Germany or all of the agents of uh, influence who are trolling my account and other people always get a German legal notice mm. in their inbox saying, we've looked and it, it's not a violation of German law. I've got a half a dozen of these before I got banned. By the way, I'm back on Twitter as of this week. And, and a number of others as well. Pepe Escobar, Scott Ritter, and a number of other accounts just reappeared this week. So after 18 months of being banned, I'm back on uh, Twitter, at 21Wire. So Elon Musk, the compassionate, Elon the compassionate, um, has allowed me back. So thank you, Elon, for that. Uh, it most, most appreciated. Um, and. Uh, but yeah, so it is coming from Germany. So that's interesting. So Germany is somehow a hub of activity. Is it the NSA boiler rooms there in uh, Stuttgart uh, air, airspace doing that? Troll farms in US military bases in Germany? Or is, is that where it's coming from? I mean, good question. all these pings on Twitter for legal notices, we'll see. But what about Facebook then? Well, uh, Facebook is going to be letting Trump back in the fold, Mike, on Instagram and Facebook. Um, he's back on Twitter. He hasn't used it yet. Um, so he, so th it's the fundraising, Mike. This is one of the reasons why they've yanked him off and kept him off is because he's raised a lot of money on social media, a lot of money through social media. It wasn't just because Trump's speech is dangerous, but also this is a huge boon for the traffic because when you have the biggest accounts like this coming back, a lot of excitement and, and it energizes the platforms. Mm -hmm. So the advertisers, of course, are interested um, despite what, uh, what, what they might be saying in terms of how much they hate Trump. But the, the head of global affairs at Facebook in Palo Alto, California, is a familiar face. To the British, anyway. To the British. And do you know who it is, Mike? Yes. It's the former leader of the Liberal Democrat Party. Um, former Deputy Prime Minister. Former, yeah, who destroyed the Liberal Democrat Party by doing a yeah. 11, 11 p.m. last-minute deal with David Cameron, a power-sharing agreement. So that was an amazing move by the Tories. But their Machiavellian skills never cease to impress us. But here's Nick Clegg. Uh, talking about Facebook banning Trump and that Facebook doesn't play winners and losers in politics. All right. Let's listen to Cleggy. Other people who may maybe still didn't get suspended on, on Facebook or Instagram who have done or said other things. Uh, and I'm just trying to get a sense of where the community standards are for political speech uh, and what you took from that day on that decision. Yeah, I mean,
In, like you, I don't think it, it helps to go through each and every single post that, that, that appeared that day. Um, uh, there are other posts where, which, which had a, a much more, uh, at best, ambivalent uh, message of support for, for those who uh, did, you know, indulge in, in, in exceptional violence at the centre of American democracy on that, on that day. But, but where we draw the line is, it, as a general principle, we're a private company, we're a private tech company, we're not a political entity, we don't we don't try and make decisions which sort of, you know, help or hinder one side or the other. We believe in free and open debate, particularly in the world's most powerful democracy, the United, United States. We're trying to strike the right balance between free expression, free and open political debate, whilst at the same time making sure that for all the users who use uh, Facebook and Instagram, it's, it's an enjoyable experience. Yeah, what qualifies them to, to find this balance? He's lying. They, they, they do play winners and losers. They are partisan. They are biased. They absolutely went after conservative accounts. They purged thousands of those accounts mm. before the 2020 elections, okay? And they took the president of the United States off the platform for who didn't commit any crime or anything like that. So, and it turns out, Mike, the whole January 6th Farago, all the evidence that continues to come out is that the whole thing was driven by FBI paid informants. And this thing was a perfect storm that was set up to happen for maximum theatrical effect, okay? That's the evidence, okay? So what Nick Clegg is telling you is total partisan propaganda. And again, it's the British influence mm -hmm. in, in US elections. So Christopher Steele, Nick Clegg, uh, Spygate. It's interesting, isn't it, how the Britain's got its hand meddling, interfering, in U.S. Uh, political affairs at the very key junctures as well, mm. very well positioned. I would say Britain's very good at what they do in that department. Absolutely. They have 100, 200, 300 years experience. So I think sure. nothing to be scoffed at. But, uh, but here, here's the story that you need to look at. The feds are adapting an AI system used to silence ISIS, where they think Islamic extremists online, to combat American dissent on vaccines and elections. The federal government working hand-in-hand -hand with universities, private companies, and big tech, and funneling millions of dollars of taxpayer money to fund AI censorship programs to be used on American citizens here. Just a snapshot. This is really an embodiment of the whole of society censorship framework that departments like the Department of Homeland Security, DHS, talked about as being their utopian vision for censorship only a few years ago. Um, says Mr. Benz, uh, featured in this article here. Excellent piece here, by the way. We see it now coming to fruition. What's he talking about as well? And if you think about the Twitter files, Mike, and the sort of manual censorship, i.e. pressure put by government agencies like the FBI, DHS, HSS, uh, NSA, CIA, directly on big tech with blacklists and so forth. Where are they getting those blacklists? Because they're not all coming from government. Ah, they're working with university departments, think tanks, and other programs that are, again, are getting federal funded. So here's the flow chart. So you've got government here, government agencies in the upper left-hand corner of this uh, diagram, and then they're feeding down to civil society agencies and organizations, universities, NGOs, activists, community leaders, nonprofits, and foundations, then over to the news media and fact checkers, politically like-minded, mainstream media, mainstream journalists, etc., 
uh, professional journalists, i.e. this, this uh, priestly class of journalists. You can't be a journalist if you're a citizen journalist or if you're on Twitter as an independent researcher. You're, you shouldn't be allowed to be call yourself a journalist. You have to belong to the special super class, okay? And then feeds that up to the private sector. That's big tech. The important box on here, Mike, is the one that nobody pays attention to. That's in the lower left-hand corner, okay? That's the, the, quote, civil society box. These are university teams of academics, some of which are, are augmented by former Facebook executives who go into these universities and departments, and they draw up blacklists, and they draw up heat maps as to what they call mapping disinformation using Gliffy, and using CrowdTangle and some of these web tools. They are not mapping disinformation. They're mapping dissent. They're mapping dissident speech. They're doxing users on Twitter, on Facebook, and I say this because I'm one of those people, okay? And I've been featured in their, uh, 21st century has been featured uh, in their academic uh, findings papers and conferences. Mm. So I know exactly how this works and we've been tracking this really since they started doing this type of work. And it, this was launched in the wake of Donald Trump's victory in the 2016 election. It caused a massive crisis in the Democratic Party and they mobilized all of their assets, money, and anything they could get their hands on to try to basically find out how they can control uh, the social media, how they control speech on the internet and you're seeing right with this diagram exactly how it's done now. So understand all of those actors together work as a system. And this is how it works. So the Integrity Initiative is kind of an interesting, Mike, parallel to that because it does sort of, you know, function in the same way. I'm well, not... it was a civil society organization. It was, a, it was set up as a charity, as we know, and, uh, and it involved people from all those various other groups. So you had people from universities, had people from NGOs, had people from uh, mainstream media, it had people from the military and the intelligence services. So uh, quite a diverse group, obviously not all core members of that organization of the Institute for Statecraft, but they were all associated with it in some way. And Atlantic Council and the DFR labs were part of that mix. Yes. And then they would communicate with big tech. And by the way, head of the DFR labs and Atlantic Council went straight to Facebook, Ben Nemo. Mm. So is he involved in this censorship matrix? I think he is. Mm. Is he involved in uh, validating blacklists of journalists and activists that need to be silenced? on Facebook, it's highly likely that he would be. We don't know for sure, but certainly looking at his pedigree with the uh, Institute for or Integrity Initiative type activity mm -hmm. and Atlantic Council and his statements in public and supporting Bellingcat, it, I would tend to think that he would be involved in that same activity at Facebook. Yeah. So that is global censorship coming out of America with a multinational uh, team there, including Nick Clegg and others. Yeah. So it's a very interesting story. Okay, let's move on to health then. And uh, well, the JCVI has issued, that's the Joint uh, Committee on Vaccination and Immunization, has issued a statement on boosters for this autumn, Patrick. Uh, and here's what they have to say. The Joint Committee on Vaccination and Immunization has advised that plans should be made for those at higher risk of severe COVID-19 to be offered a booster vac vaccination this autumn in 2023. Uh, the JCVI also advised that for a smaller group of people, such as those who are older or who are immunosuppressed, an extra booster vaccine dose in the spring should also be planned for. Advice regarding the spring 2023 COVID-19 program will be provided shortly. 
So here is uh, uh, the Professor Wei Shen Lim from the JCPI saying, well, basically, it continues, the vaccine continues, his words, to severe, uh, reduce severe disease across the population while helping to protect the NHS. So they continue to spout this uh, nonsense. Uh, this is why we have advised planning for further booster vaccines for person of higher, persons at higher risk of illness through an autumn booster program this year. Now, what's interesting is that they're actually talking about uh, ending the vaccine offer. They call it an offer. It's like, you know, Marks and Spencer's or something, get, get our uh, winter offer this year. Uh, so they're ending the winter offer for vaccines for, for example, they're going to close the autumn booster campaign uh, and the first booster uh, uh, after the 12th of February 2023. So that's for the for the autumn 2022 booster campaign. They're going to end that offer in February 2023. And they strongly encourage everyone who is currently eligible for the first booster to come and uh, get get their booster before the offer closes. It's like it's like you're listening to somebody from, you know, Main Street or something. It's it's get it while supplies last. Well, exactly. You know, so uh, anyway. It seems they seem to be ramping down uh, this to some degree, but in the meantime, of course, uh, the vaccine injured continue to be uh, unheard by the mainstream press and so on. Uh, and Andrew Bridgen, MP, of course, as everybody knows now, uh, has taken a stand on this. Uh, many of uh, you, many of UK column viewers, have been writing to their MPs and asking uh, what for comment on this. Uh, and I just wanted to highlight one. We'll, we'll highlight others uh, over the coming days. Uh, but I just wanted to highlight one to give an example of how obscene some of these responses are. So that here is uh, Graham Stewart MP, who's the MP for Beverly and Holderness. Uh, and this is his response to someone who asked some very specific questions. So Graham Stewart didn't address any of the questions that he was asked uh, at all, uh, but he made this statement. He said, thank you for contact me, contacting me about Andrew Bridge and MP. MP for Northwest Leicestershire, Mr. Bridgen's spread of misinformation about the COVID-19 vaccines is deeply offensive, is the claim of this MP. He went on to say this, as a nation, we should be very proud of what has been achieved through the vaccine program. The vaccine is the best defense against COVID-19 we have. Uh, and he said, uh, misinformation about the, vac that, about the vaccine causing harm and costs lives. Uh, he has not, I am certain, if he's making a statement like that, spoken to anyone who has been injured uh, as a result of taking a COVID-19 vaccine, I would suggest that anybody who's in Graham Stewart's constituency uh, would should write to him today and basically ask him to justify this statement uh, because this is disgraceful. Mr. Bridgen has had the whip removed with immediate effect pending an informal investigation, uh, he says. Uh, he went on, to, of course, to play the anti-Semitism card. This has been a theme uh, through this program, Patrick. Right. So here he is. The Prime Minister commented that it is utterly unacceptable to make linkages between the Holocaust and the COVID-19 vaccine. Now, anybody that's being honest about what Andrew Bridgen said knows very well that he wasn't making a linkage uh, between the Holocaust and COVID-19 vaccine. He said that this was the worst disaster since the Holocaust, or words to that effect. I can't remember the exact words he used, but... Uh, this this twisting of what uh, Bridgen said is again. I like the new verbiage, unacceptable linkage. Yes. So yeah, you got to steer clear of unacceptable linkages, linkages. in future. Everybody, just a little. Uh, uh, and and then Sunak apparently added that he is determined that the scourge of anti-Semitism is eradicated, and it has absolutely <laughs> no place in our society. So anybody you know that that is uh, making any comment or asking any questions 
they continue to get the tag of anti-Semite, uh, and that just deals with the problem straight away. The, Graham Stewart needs to be held to account for these statements, and uh, I strongly urge people to contact him. Well, the first the first slide, Mike, you, you said that, uh, I don't know if you can bring up the first slide, but he, he made a statement that seems to be very non-scientific, that the vaccine prevents you from getting COVID or protects you from COVID. Um, someone should notify Graham Stewart that the CDC in America has abandoned this, I claim. I this idea, as has Pfizer itself. And certainly that's what shows in their uh, really haphazard clinical trials, but they don't show that any uh, protection against, you know, catching COVID-19, according to the pharmaceutical company, according to the CDC, and according to other government agencies. So is this a case, Mike, where you have some politicians that are still clinging to what are propaganda points from 2020 and 2021 that have long been disproven? They're still clinging to the talking points. Yes. So they haven't updated their software. They're still running Windows 97 COVID, okay? So uh, it, it, that's that's unacceptable for a politician. So who's briefing these people? They should be up to date on what's going on because when they go and make statements like this, they discredit themselves, yeah. simple as that. Yes, okay, well, let's, uh, let's do what we threatened to do and uh, uh, bring Jeremy Hunt on screen. He was giving a speech this morning talking about his priorities for the economy. And uh, well, let's just listen to a few seconds of this. Is that risk taking by individuals and businesses can only happen when governments provide economic and financial stability. So the best tax cut right now is a cut in inflation. And the plan I set out in the autumn statement tackles that root cause of instability in the British economy. The Prime Minister talked about halving inflation as one of his five key priorities. And doing so is the only sustainable way to restore industrial harmony. So there we go. We're going to restore industrial <laughs> harmony by tackling inflation. Uh, and of course, did he mention money printing? Did he mention government debt? Did he mention the things which actually drive inflation? No, he didn't. Uh, what he went on to mention was what a great country Britain is for tech companies. They particularly want life sciences. They want uh, Silicon Valley all to leave California and come to the UK uh, and, and build their tech companies here. Uh, the capability of the city of London combined with the research strengths of our universities make our aspiration to be a technology superpower, not just ambitious, but achievable he mm -hmm. said, and today I'm here to say the government is determined to make it happen. This should make people, never mind what the thousands of people dying in Ukraine, don't worry about that, because our government's looking after us. We're gonna build Britain into a tech, technological superpower. Global leaders in surveillance and censorship. Yes. So look, my, when you hear the word tackle, everybody, politicians like using this word tackle, we're gonna tackle. Tackle means equals nothing will get done. It's better to say tackle if you're a politician and to say, we're going to solve this problem. They never say that. They say, we're going to tackle it. Well, some tackles are successful and others aren't. And the uh, person runs down the field. But, he, he announced the three E's, Patrick, you'll be glad to know, because these are the key components, co components for long-term prosperity, enterprise, education, and employment. Oof. Those are the three E's. So everybody should be impressed with that. But by the end of the speech, it became four E's. Uh, because the fourth one was everywhere. 
everywhere. Yes, enterprise, education, employment, and everywhere. How does that square with UBI and universal credit, this, this idea of creating jobs? Government also likes to say they can create jobs. Uh, well, they're, they're going to create lots of jobs in the good tech sector. Good paying jobs. Good paying jobs, yes, it's going to be fantastic. Good paying green jobs. One name was dropped. We're going to end on this. One name was dropped in his speech. Uh, and no surprises, hold on to your hats. The name that was dropped was Bill Gates. That was the name that Jeremy Hunt thought everybody should know about in his speech. Uh, and so there you go. A lack of self-awareness is an understatement. <laughs> um, when they, by the way, just the last thing, Mike, what is the inflation rate right now per month, month uh, on month? Uh, well, it depends. Uh, the inflation rate, the headline inflation rate, well, month on month, don't know, but the, the annual inflation rate is supposed to be 10% at the moment. If you're buying food, it's significantly higher than that. 14, 15, 16, maybe 20% in some cases. People are noticing, I'm noticing. It's you a go, lot higher than 10, Mike. It's a lot higher than 10%. So the, the key thing about inflation is, of course, you've got some products uh, which are high, higher cost, higher rate of change, some that, that are lower. And when they measure their basket of goods, they get an average and the average isn't necessarily the things that we actually need. So if there's some things that aren't, that are maybe luxury purchases where the, there isn't much inflation because people don't have much money and therefore actually there's downward pressure on the prices of luxury goods, then that tends to offset the, the reality. But when food and energy are the two key costs. And rent. and, and uh, Yes, exactly. Uh, Rents are going up as well. Uh, then uh, that the, the reality of inflation for people on the ground is much higher than the headline suggests. And they want to raise taxes as well, and it will be raised all over the place. Council tax, they're saying there's going to be a crisis with councils, they're going to have to yep. raise council tax. But, you know, if the real inflation rate's 20%, Mike, and, he, and, and the Prime Minister promises to have that by the end of the year, it, it, what are we talking about, 10%? Will that be half? Is that going to be good? Is that successful? Is that going to stabilize things? I really don't think that these people, especially when did Jeremy Hunt become an economic expert? I don't know. Never. The bottom line here is we should not be spending billions of pounds on a war that we shouldn't be having anything to do with in Ukraine. And uh, it's time that people, we need to rebuild an anti-war lobby, I think, in this country. But anyway, that's that's just a final thought. Yeah, before the doomsday clock. Uh, Six to midnight. Yeah. Uh, just a little food for thought. Okay, we got to leave it there for today. Thank everybody for joining us. Uh, we'll be back in a few minutes for a bit of extra. Um, thanks, Patrick, for, for being with us. If you're not joining us for extra because you're not a UK column member, we'll see you at 1 p.m. as usual on Monday. I uh, hope you have a great weekend and we'll see you then. Bye bye. <laughs>